Welcome to Subtle Beast, everybody. I am your host, Volt, sitting here with my partner in crime, Mr. Steve Apostolopoulos. Steve, how are you, brother? I'm feeling good, Volt. How are you? I'm doing excellent. I'm excited for tonight. Uh, coming off of some uh, some pretty pretty interesting podcasts that we've just put out. We just did uh, Skinwalker Ranch, which we've got uh, you know a lot of positive responses to. So I'm happy about that. So thank you to the one to the people that reached out to us and told us that you liked that and we got a big response on a never a straight answer too so uh bunch of fun bunch yeah. of fun podcast well, everyone seems to be having fun with season two um and uh we're having a ball and um we're gonna have a good time tonight too we have uh we have a lot of different information that we want to get into we want to talk about a lot of different um key insiders uh, that have come out and, and and given us a lot of information on on, on secret projects. Uh, one of the gentlemen we're going to be talking about tonight, uh, you may have heard if you're familiar in the circles that Subtle Beast travels, is a uh, Dr. Dan Burrish. We're going to be talking about him. Uh, I'm sure a lot of you are familiar with the uh, with the name Bob Lazar. Bob Lazar was a is a big player in the in the UFO community and coming out and releasing information like on Area 51 and uh, the, the S4 facility. Um, Phil Schneider, another big insider, uh, will be touching a little bit on um, some of the information that he had to put forward to and offer his advice and his knowledge on tonight's episode, uh, which we're going to be talking a lot about. Uh, maybe you're not familiar, but it's a great topic, uh, Project Aquarius. So, um, but I think what we should probably do, since we're going to be talking about so many different key insiders tonight, um, let's start with our with our main with our main person who came forward with the most testimony, more testimony and more accuracy on um, an insider project uh, and uh, Project Aquarius is is that project. So I'm going to fill you in with a little bit on Dr. Dan Burrish. <clears throat> so in 1985 and 1986, Dan was conferred separate bachelor degrees in biological science and, and psychology by the University of Nevada in Las Vegas, and letters from senators and congressmen and others which are on file and are available for review through any of Open Minds documentation. Now, in March of 1986, Dan was approached at UNLV by members of the so-called quote-unquote secret government, or SG. Three men, two in military uniforms and one in semi-military clothing, approached Dan and offered him a job working on Top Secret Program, where his talents and skills could be exercised to the fullest extent. He was promised access to the latest scientific laboratory equipment and was he was assured that the budgetary funding would never be an issue. And several contacts occurred, and afterwards, contacts ceased near the end of 86. Now, by 1987, Dan, Dan had assumed that he had canceled his participation in the program. By this time, Dan decided to explore a possible future as a priest with the Roman Catholic Church. He underwent psychological and other assessments and finding him to be quote-unquote normal. They accepted him for the seminary, and his training began at St. Patrick's School of Theology in Menlo Park, California. That didn't last long. Burrish decided that the seminary was not for him. So after leaving the seminary school in 1987 and with no further contact by the government, Dan began work as a parole and probation officer for the state of Nevada. Now, at this point, members of the secret government again contacted Dan and decided that his current place of employment would serve as the ideal cover 
for classified assignments, which would be directed to him. Now, by 89, after Dan had been promoted to the court services unit after single-handedly capturing a bank robber at gunpoint in downtown Las Vegas, tissue samples would be sent directly to Dan's office at the Parole and Probation Department, Phoenix Building. From there, Dan would take samples to another location and examine them. Next, he would write up detailed technical analysis, which would then be returned by him to the Phoenix Building. The messenger would then be notified and drop by to pick up the original slides and technical analysis. During his employment with the probation department, Dr. Edward Teller, who's the father of the H-bomb, took an interest in Dan's work and arranged for him to attend classes at the State University of New York, Stony Brook, or Sunsby. Dan was flown to and from New York via both a specially assigned military aircraft, in a few cases, commercial transport. In each case, he had two military escort personnel assigned to him. At Sunsby, he was assigned to a special advisor who was an expert in glycoprotein research who also sent him modules to Las Vegas for him to study and arrange for proctored examinations in Las Vegas. Now, by the end of 1989, he had completed a dissertation and defense for his doctorate in cellular biology. That, together with his work at the parole and probation, caused him to become bedridden, bedridden I'm sorry, for two months. In January of 1990, after recovering from exhaustion, he was able to return to work at parole and probation. Soon after, he met his future wife, Deborah K. Burrish. Miss Burrish met Dr. Dan as a consequence from her own legal troubles. In the meantime, Dr. Dan's doctoral certificate from Sunsby had arrived at his parents' apartment. Now, due to Mrs. Burrish's refusal to return their certificate and save a probable photograph of her with the certificate on file, it appears that the original certificate is lost in history. Now, by 1988, Marsha McDowell, using the pseudonym B.J. Wolf, published a book called Eagles Disobey, The Case for the Inca City Mars. Dan was listed as the co-author and supplied many in- images for the book. These images included potential artificial structures on Mars. However, the members of the black world were displeased with this disclosure information and proceeded to expunge Dan's educational background at two locations. Records of his bachelors of science and biological science were removed at the University of Nevada at Las Vegas, while other teams erased evidence of his PhD at Sunsby. Prior to the erasure of the PhD at Sunsby, co-worker of Dr. Dan's in cover job, subsequent to his first cover job at the parole and probation, called Sunsby and received confirmation of Dr. Dan's PhD at that institution. Now, evidence suggesting transcript tampering from UNLV is on file with open minds. Additionally, original photographs in the original audio tape of Dr. Nam being conferred his Bachelor of Science in Biological Sciences by UNLV have been obtained, substantiating his account. Since that date, both Dan and Marsha have been conferred other doctorates, the legal certificates for which are on file with open minds as well, in their vault. Dan's work on classified black programs began in 1990 and 1991 time period. Concurrently, he was deployed in Operation Desert Storm as a defense biowarfare expert in black ops operations. He refuses to discuss much about his role in the defense. Well, that's pretty uh 
that's a pretty good uh, start to uh, why the dark government would probably be interested in you. You have all these different degrees, and you have, you have places where they say, oh, we could this would be a great place to carry out our covert operations, you know, right in plain sight. Right, and then you, you don't do what they want, or you come out a little bit against them, and they start to erase them. Exactly. That's crazy. Right. Now, going forward, by 94, Dan received and accepted an offer to work on a top-secret program known as Project Aquarius, located at the underground facility known as Papoose Lake Facility, or S4, also known as the Dark Side of the Moon, also known as Dreamland, located 12 miles south of Area 51, or Nullis Air Force Base in Nevada. Security measures at the facility were very oppressive. This included armed guards, optical scans, voice print identifications, showering, weighing, shaving, and decontamination. Dan was told he had to be commissioned by the Department of the Navy and was given a secret Q clearance. At times, he was assigned to work under the direction of the prestigious Naval Research Laboratory and the Defense Intelligence Agency. These assignments were designated on official documents to legitimize his presence while working for a group called Majestic. Wow. So, okay. Let's see. Okay. So, it gets we go in further depth here. So, Burrish states, it was here at S4 that he would come into contact with physical evidence that truly challenged his belief system. He learned that the U.S. military was in possession of hardware not originating from this planet. This included physical structured vehicles of extraterrestrial origin and their occupants. He learned that the advancements directly associated with the field of military aerospace were actually made through reverse engineering program beginning in the 1940s. Dan described the facility as having five working floors with the last floor accessible only by one elevator. Dan was transported from McCarran International Airport to Area 51 via Janet 737-200 airliner. The staging point for pickup and drop-off is the EG&G building across from the main terminal. These aircraft feature a painted white exterior with a single red stripe running along both sides of the fuselage. During the short Janet flight to Area 51, no talking was allowed between personnel that Dan was allied with. Dan described most of the interior cabins as being slate gray in color. When entering the aircraft, Dan was instructed to sit near the aft end of the cabin, and then drape. Then a drape was pulled, thereby separating his section with the rest of the cabin. Seating arrangements were carefully chosen so that passengers were quarantined from various personnel who may be working on various different programs on the base. One approach to landing. One approach to landing. Dan remembered hearing the call sign "Pyramid, Pyramid, Pyramid." This may have been the authorization clearance from Groom Lake Air Traffic Control allowing jets to prepare for final approach to Area 51. Not only that, on the way to Area 51, Burrish recalled the pilot played a very interesting song over the public address system. The song was none other than Neil Diamond's Coming to America. Now, Dan remarked that this song would be played over and over during the flight in his section. In its original interpretation, the song symbolizes immigrants from around the world who are 
coming to America in search of a better life. However, taking into consideration what goes on secretly at S4, the song takes on an entirely new meaning. Was the purpose of the playing of the song on board the Janet S-37 an encrypted symbolic reference to extraterrestrial races who are coming to America, specifically S-4? You know, people do that all the time. That pilot probably was sending a cryptic message out there. Oh, absolutely, because they used to do it until it became illegal in the movies. They used to have those subliminal messages, you're thirsty, you're hungry, you want to go to the snack bar, this, that, and the other thing. And, and shopping departments used to use it as well during Christmas time. And in the, in the Christmas music they played it was like, buy more, shop more, spend more. I didn't know that. Yeah, lots of crazy things. I know that they would put it in the movies because it would be like a one-second flash of like a bucket of popcorn. Yeah. And then all of a sudden you would think, oh, it's some popcorn. Yeah, and, and, and it works. and. The government made it for some outlets illegal, but obviously they still operate under it. This guy just playing Coming to America over and over again. Right, right. Just putting it blatantly in their face. And then, geez, I mean, just separating. You can't see who else is supposed to be on the on board the plane. That's how compartmentalized these things are. So when people say, well, how come more people don't come forward? Well, some people only may know what they work on, which may be no big deal, Which, but is really the key link to this project over here, which can do whatever, you know. And everybody thinks they're in on the... The most inner layer of the onion. Yeah, everybody does, and it's crazy because... It'd be so weird if I was on a plane, walked on the plane, went the whole way to the back of the plane, they shut the curtain, brought you on the plane. Yeah. And then we went to work, and the way that they unload it would be the same way. I wouldn't even know that you were on that plane. Right, yeah. It's crazy, yeah. I mean, that's probably how they keep it from, like, if you're next-door neighbors and astrophysicist, and he works there, too... And that's why you got to come through that one secret terminal because they don't want people to see who's going on these airlines. Now, when you get to Nullis Air Force Base or Area 51, S4 is still another trip, and you can they provide transportation from Area 51 to S4, and it's either by standard issue blue-colored Air Force bus, a U.S. Army Black Hawk helicopter, or a Soviet. MI-24 Hind helicopter, which is basically just a beast mode helicopter that's is just that, that was, armed to the teeth. That's my pr- that's my preference. Yeah, I'd be like, oh yeah, if I had my choice between the, the old bus, <laughs> the uh, maybe the, the the Apache maybe looking helicopter versus this sucker, I'm taking the uh, Hind helicopter. Yeah, that thing is cool. So they they provide. <clears throat> Uh, if you if you want to look up what some of the pictures of S four the surrounding area, you can look them up online. Um, they show an exterior view of the S four uh, facility, showing that it has nine hangar bays, uh, a painted walkway. Um, they show uh, a view depicting uh, an entry door to the S four facility, and the door is cool. It, it it's like a slider door that slides back on itself, kind of like uh, like the old partition like if you were in a house and it would like a sliding door from room to room it looks like that it just kind of like is a dual partition and slides back upon itself and it probably helps with i mean if it's in the it's in the side of papoose mountain having layered like that makes it look more seamless when it's shut so it just looks probably like part of the mountain right you know so but uh the s4 facility does have nine hangar bays which are built into the side of the papoose mountain range at an angle of 60 degrees now the exterior texture of the bay doors were specifically designed to blend in with the surrounding background 
Now, a small tarmac is located immediately in front of the hangar bays to facilitate the removal of different craft. A unique walkway consisting of parallel blue and red lines leads directly to the front entrance. Dan was told to stay within the blue lines and to never break the boundaries of the exterior of the red lines. Security guards along this oppressive walkway had a shoot-to-kill orders to neutralize anyone who breached the red lines. They're gonna, if it was you and me walking in there? I mean... If if I if I knew that, that they had a shoot to kill, I'd be looking so closely at where this blue line. I would push you out. <laughs> I'd just be like, like, I'd be like I would I, pull you back at the last second. I would just like pretend to push you out. You'd be like, dude. I'd be like, you can't mess around like that in S four. <laughs> they got snipers. You would see the snipers up there. They want to shoot us. <laughs> so let's see. So we talked about uh, or the the. Let's see what we got. Let me tell them about level one. Yeah, definitely. Level one housed fire control equipment, a dining facility, communications, security surveillance, and an avionics laboratory. Level one also housed the archives and also a files department. Provisions for a propulsion research laboratory are also housed on level one of S4. Now, the dining area seats consisted of round tables that had four attached round seats. The cafeteria seating was arrangement was broken down specific to projects, kind of like the, the plane was, which included Project Galileo, Weapons Research, Project Looking Glass, and Project Aquarius. Special members of MJ-12 had their own designated table in the cafeteria. The interior of all nine hangar bays included a red circle, which contained the designation 4-1 in red text. Now, again, they have uh, I have some pictures in front of me. Um, I'll put them up on our Facebook page so you can see. I just want to give you uh, like a brief overview of like once once you're in this S4 facility, what some of the things that you know you come in contact with or you'll see. Um, basically, one upon entering, uh, as soon as you get in the building, there's a there's a left side view of a, a matron or a, a main entrance showing a "I want to believe" poster, which you know we're all familiar with with from the X Files. It has the uh, the cylinder craft with the "I want to believe." Um, then they show another view looking to the right, showing a badge area. It's just basically a desk and a chair, and then that's it. They do have a nice picture of the view down the hallway immediately after opening the door where they have the, the red and uh, blue lines, which you better stay on the red one unless I guess you have like magic clearance because uh, you'll be shot. Um, let's see what else. Uh, that, that hallway looks just plain. Oh, it does. It like, does. And this, you know, this whole facility doesn't look like it anything. Well, yeah, and it, it, it's it's meant to be very distracting as well. Um, I was watching an interview with Burrish, and he was talking about you go in there, there's just so many different loud colors, just like bright, bright red and blues and yellows. He said it kind of reminded you of like being in like a like a kindergarten class almost. But, oh, yeah. But, it, I mean, I'm sure it's just set up to be, you know, to throw you off of what other people are working on. Take there. your eye away. Yeah. So, um what were some some of the other uh, photos that we came across? Um, 
there was a there was a view of the uh, that they're showing of the upper catwalk, looking down the length of uh, the nine hangar bays. Um, they show a view of the the P forty five J rod craft in hangar bay one, from the perspective of the catwalk, showing a sport model, the identical craft also in hangar bay two. Um, they say a view of the sport model from the perspective of the ground level, just showing you a, this seamless craft. Um, they show from Hangar Bay 3 a view of a tarp-covered P-24 Roswell craft. The, uh, the sport model is dope. The sport model looks like ev- and, and just the normal like uh, disc, like the saucer. Yeah, like see. yeah, like pretty much like what was seen in in the in the poster of uh, I Want to Believe. Yeah. Um, the P-24 craft with the tarp removed, showing smooth, contoured, blended configurations, which form the basis for the Lockheed Martin F-22. I mean, and you can clearly see. I mean, if you look up the, the P-24 craft or Lockheed Martin F-22 and put them side by side, they look awesome. Yeah, that looks... I look, mean, you can clearly tell that that's like some ET. Based off of it, yeah. Oh, yeah, or some back-engineered infra- or craft for sure. Um, they say that uh, in Hangar Bay 4, there's a view of the P-52 Orion craft, which kind of, if you're familiar with like the, the Nazi bell, um, it, it's very similar to that. Um, it almost looks like um, like the candy Rolo with like a gumball on top with it kind of sunk into the <laughs> middle of the Rolo, right? <laughs> it, it does. It's great. That's a great description. So, uh, and then uh, there's an illustration for the P-52K Orion craft. Um, and then uh, there was a view of uh, hangar bays five and nine, which Burr said when he was there were, were pretty empty. Um, bay, hangar bay eight had a view of the black licorice drop isosceles triangle, which he said when it did take flight, it almost looked like just like a distorted black glob in the sky. I mean, it just looks really really awesome so but uh, i'll tell you a little bit about uh bursh once he got inside now immediately to the left of the entrance way of the s4 facility an i want to believe poster was mounted on the wall in the propulsion research laboratory disassembled waveguides from the craft in the hangar bays were being studied to determine their mode of operation to the right of the avionics laboratory housed the briefing room in this area, training update tapes, or TUTs, were housed along with the DTIC, or the Defense Technical Information Center, blue three-ring binders, and booklets. This area also contains specific details on extraterrestrial species known as the Orions. Additional information contained in the briefing room included details on the Zeta Reticulum star system, government weapons, and a copy of the 1954 agreement made between President Eisenhower and the P-52 Orion extraterrestrials. Now, immediately to the left of the avionics lab was a storage facility which housed components for Project Sidekick. Now, according to Burrish, the S-4 facility was poorly lit with the exception of the laboratory areas in levels 4-4 and 4-5. Now, the walls of level 4-1 were painted gray with an 8-inch thick orange stripe running diagonally down the length of the hallway. All the hallways in the facility had security camera domes mounted approximately 12 inches from the ceiling and spaced every 10 feet. Parallel blue and red stripes were painted on the floor of many levels of the facility. 
Nine hangar bays, which were built into the sides of the Papoose Mountain Range, housed multiple craft of different configurations. Level 1, also known as 4-1, of course derived from Area S4, Level 1 or 4-1, included the so-called Galileo Bay, which housed many different models of flying aircraft. Now, when Bob Lazar reported that he worked at the facility during 1988 and 89, he said there were nine craft visible in the bays, including the sport model and other configurations. Now, when Dan worked at the facility from 91 to 96, he observed five craft with two hangar bays being empty and two bays housing objects covered with black tarps. Now, when Dan observed the Galileo bays, he saw bay one, which contained a craft from the P-45J rods. The configuration of the craft in this bay, as well as the craft in bay two, and um, are based upon the craft in bay one, resembled the overall description of the sport model, or uh, uh, a back-engineered aerial reproduction vehicle. Now, bay three housed a craft reported to Dan as being the original Roswell craft that crashed north of Roswell on July 3rd, 1947. Now, this particular craft was covered by a tarp, making it difficult to make out the exterior details. Bay four contained the Orion craft, which some have said had the like- likelihood likeness of a jello mold. Hangar bay five was empty. Bay 6 contained what Dan was told was the reproduction vehicle from Bay 3's Roswell craft. Dan was told that the control surface on the F-22 Raptor had elements from the original Roswell craft's control surface configured into them. It was described as looking similar to the Lockheed Martin's F-22 Raptor, but with the vertical stabilizers and air intakes removed, and the position of the cockpit canopy moved forward. The original Roswell craft was a P-24 Earth-to-Earth terrestrial craft capable of moving through time and maintaining lift in the atmosphere. This man-made craft also had highly smooth, rounded contours similar to the Northrop Grumman B-2 stealth bomber. Now, let's see. So, okay. Bay 7. Now, Bay 7 contained an unknown craft or other device which was covered by a tarp bay eight housed a black isosceles triangle which was described by dan burris as looking like a licorice drop bay nine was empty all nine bays had two small slits on the hangar floors which retracted back provided access to the subfloor level aka 41b which also extended just ahead of the hangar hangar bays. This unique area contained a large pylon with a rotating gimbal. This shaped craft would be placed on top of this assembly, which was used as a flying saucer simulator. The equipment corresponds to the testimony of Bill Uhouse. Bill Uhouse designed with the assistance of another J-Rod, or what they're referring to as extraterrestrial, in the area of Los Alamos National Laboratory. Two of the three J-Rods from the 1953 Kingsman, Arizona crash survived the crash. One of the P-45 J-Rods was taken to Los Alamos National Laboratory and worked with Bill Uhouse on this flight simulator equipment. The other survivor, a P-52 J-Rod, was subsequently housed at S-4 Level 5 in the Papoose Lake facility and was the one with whom Dan Burrish had interaction with Bill Uhouse and Dan Burrish's accounts were independently documented by William Hamilton. 
Now, drawings from Bill Uhouse, who said that he was hired to help develop and build flying saucer flight simulators at Area S4 and Los Alamos National Laboratory. These simulators were specifically configured to teach American test pilots how to operate disc-shaped ARVs, designed from the extraterrestrial or original models. Human pilots were not able to operate the original craft because the small, full-bodied molded apparatus that a person would be required to fit into in order to pilot the craft were just simply too small, even for the smallest of test pilots. The P-45 J-Rod craft contained three full-body molded seats for pilots, positioned at 60 degrees around the circular control deck. Measuring slightly less than 50 feet in diameter and approximately 13 to 14 feet high, these alien reproduction vehicles, based upon the original P-45 craft, had a surface that appeared like brushed aluminum or titanium. The original craft was aesthetically more pleasing and appeared to have a titanium silicon composite surface. The craft had an upper, middle, and lower deck. According to both Bill Uhouse and Charles Suggs, the avionics for the sport model are housed in the upper deck. Per comments by Bob Lazar, the middle deck is comprised of three small chairs, three gravity amplifiers, and one waveguide. The lower deck contains three so-called gravity amplifiers. Human pilots had difficulty interfacing with an unknown extraterrestrial avionics system, so efforts to build a man-made ASC, or alien simulated craft, began in the mid-1950s. Now, according to the previously mentioned individuals, these are cutaway illustrations of the sport model, which we'll put up on Facebook, showing the internal details of the craft that was housed in the Galileo Bay of S4. No electrical wires were found to be inside the vehicle, indicating that they may have been a neural network or brainwave frequency connection between the flight controls and the occupants and gravity amplifiers on the lower floor. For flight, for flight near a pre-existing gravitational field, only the center gravity amplifier would be used in the so-called Omicron configuration. For traveling in deep space, all three gravity amplifiers would be focused on a single point known as the delta configuration. Now, according to Bob Lazar, the power source of the sport model came from element 115. This element was loaded into the antimatter reactor and bombarded with protons. When a proton plugs into the nucleus of an atom, element 115, it increases its atomic number to element 116, which decays instantly. What element 116 releases as it decays is antimatter, which is the power source of the craft. What Bob Lazar did not say was that the spontaneous decomposition of element 115 was counteracted by the presence of other materials which acted in supportive fashion to element 115. That's sick. That is pretty sick. They've got a power source and it's just element 115 and then... You bombard that with protons, and then that changes it to element 116, which is antimatter. Which decays into antimatter. Boom. That's the recipe for antimatter. And so uh, basically, then you can travel anywhere, anywhere through time, space. 
you could you could be from the zeta reticulum system probably to earth in like 2.2 seconds yeah i mean if you have antimatter fueling your yeah because i mean they're not flying all those light years they're folding space and time and they're just getting they're just getting to where they need to be from thought so there's a, a shot of this uh the, an illustration of the craft recovered from the Kingman UFO crash in 1953, and it looks exactly like uh, the disc. You yeah, know? just like a UFO should look, like you would think. Um, it looks a little dinged up and like they were working on it in, in that photo, but who knows? If the, maybe those are the intakes on the vehicle. You know, It might be a good idea to you know, talk about the, uh, the Kingsman crash. So when the vehicle crashed in Kingsman, Arizona... One of the first units to respond was dispatched out of Utah, part of Project Pounce, or the laundry team. They expected to find no one alive, so the laundry team was supposed to clean up any bodies and crash material and return it all to the facility in Utah. Now, when they got there, they found the disc wedged open because it crashed into a rocky area. One of the three occupants was ejected upon impact, along with his biocontainment seating unit, which was still around him. He was declared dead at the scene. The two other biocontainment seating units were still functioning. The Utah unit then requested pressurized chambers to be rushed to the crash site. One of the J-Rods began communicating with the Pounce team telepathically in broken English, indicating that their destination was the Los Alamos area. The other J-Rod also communicated, although the stories were slightly different. They noticed that the way he symbolically spoke to the Pounce unit was different than the way the other J-Rod was phrasing his telepathic communications. The Pounce unit communicated with the Los Alamos and was told that there were... Uh, that there was a P-45 disc expected to arrive for t- participation in a Sigma communications team project. Upon the arrival at Los Alamos unit in Arizona, they determined that one J-Rod was not a P-45 J-Rod as they expected, but a P-52 J-Rod that they knew nothing about. So there was two different alien species on this on this plane. Right, one that they knew that they were working with and one that seems to be pretending to be. The decision was made at that point to separate the two living J-Rods. One went to Los Alamos, and the other, which Dan worked with in the clean sphere, was taken to Area 51. The P-45 J-Rod that went to Los Alamos continued in his Sigma project efforts after recovering from the crash. His job was to assist our people in back-engineering flight simulators that would operate the P-24-type Roswell craft. Bill Uhouse was given disinformation with respect to the number of crash occupants and was not told about the unusual J-Rod, the P-52, being on the crashed craft. After working with Bill Uhouse for a while, the P-45 J-Rod at Los Alamos was offered a deal to provide flight simulator information for the P-45 disc to Bill and his team or be reported to his own people as being deceased like the other occupant in the crash. He agreed to the deal and supplied the flight simulator information for his disc, the P-45 Sport model. A few years later, after the transport back and forth between Los Alamos and the S-4 facility, that P-45 J-Rod was allowed to go home. After the P-52 J-Rod had arrived at Groom Lake, 
Majestic arranged for him to be in a more suitable environment, contained with better conditions. He was then transported via ground team to the Papoose Lake facility, S-4, to be put into the offensive biological warfare animal testing system. This containment testing system became known as the Clean Sphere. Having taken over the area for the containment of the J-Rod, Majestic arranged for the offensive biological warfare personnel to be moved to Camp Dietrich. At this point, the power brokers quickly arranged for funding so that those in charge of the warfare program would not complain about the quick change of their facilities. Camp Dietrich and enhanced funding can be tracked in that year. The P-52 J-Rod identified himself as coming from the direction of the Aquarius system. The Air Force's control over what then became Project Aquarius was quickly taken away by the Air Force, from the Air Force by the Navy. Because the naval members of Majestic had surmised in reports that there should be people beyond the people the P-45 time frame, whereas the Air Force had concluded, after listening to the lies from the P-45s, that there could not be anybody beyond their time frame, even though the P-45s themselves had surmised that there could be, but had no proof of it. Unable to communicate with the P-52 J-Rod's home people until he provided engineering schematics and where to find them for the looking glass and stargates, the P-52 was held captive an anomaly, and potentially he was an alien spy. The craft was brought to Area S-4, most likely by way of large overland transporter, such as the U.S. Army's 40-ton Dragon Wagon. The whereabouts of his craft remain unknown to Dan, but he surmises that the object under the tarp in Bay 5 may have been the disc from this 1953 crash. That's some crazy stuff right there. Yeah, it is. I mean, you got you're dealing with like two different agencies, two different extraterrestrial races. One who they're working with and they can trust. One who they're just like, well, we've never heard of these guys, and like, well, they're saying things that are similar to the other, and then like, separate them, lock them up. They're lying. This guy, he can go home eventually. This guy, he can't go anywhere. Well, that one guy really, the one J Rod really didn't have a choice. It was like, hey, we're either going to tell your people that you're dead. So they're not going to even request you, or you build us the simulator and then you can go home. I mean, there was no, there wasn't really a question there. Imagine that guy's story when he got home. Yeah, well, you know what? I mean, that that leads to the question before we, you know, continue continue on with this 1953 crash. It makes me always think that you know these extraterrestrial races or these, um, yeah, extraterrestrial races because uh, alien would would indicate. Um, uh, somewhere from outer space extraterrestrial could just be from any dimension so it begs to differ like or it makes me always wonder do can anybody from those planets or those or those dimensions get crafts and, and go or do they have like their own astronaut program too like these guys like like yeah like if you and i were in a, in a craft and we went we could fly to another planet and if they held us captive and were like help us build this simulator you could never go home we'd be like Guess we're never going home because we would not have. So, I mean, unless, you know, they're so advanced, they just know how to do all that stuff. I'd be like an F-14 fighter getting shot down over China. Yeah, and be like, build us a simulator. But they have training, though, that they're, you know, they can do certain things. They can't do certain things. These alien travelers probably have some sort of training where they're like, hey, if you get 
if you're, you know, you get crashed on Earth, make sure you don't tell them this. Yeah. <laughs> just build them a simulator. <laughs> <laughs> don't build them a real craft. Just build them a simulator. No doubt. <laughs> All right. Let's see. So in the year following the 1953 crash, President Eisenhower was summoned to Edwards Air Force Base area to meet with the P-52 Orions. The main subject of the meeting was the imminent future of humanity and to prevent hostilities between the aggressive P-45 J-Rods and their newly recognized counterparts, the P-52 J-Rods. From this meeting, where President Eisenhower was presented with the Orion Cube, formal diplomatic discussions began between all parties with the Orions leading the way. The origin of the animosity between the CIA and the NSA control of majestic operation events where they pertain to extraterrestrials has its origin in the 1953 crash and creation of Project Aquarius. Now, the CIA and the Air Force's control of the events fell through with the acknowledgement that their naval counterparts were correct in an assessment of more varieties of extraterrestrials. Now, because the Air Force's intelligence assessment failed primary control of Project Aquarius was given over to the NSA cryptologists and the Navy. This angered the Air Force and CIA, both having their origins in the National Security Act of 1947 in an environment where extraterrestrials were just deemed time travelers. The new kids on the block from 1952, the NSA, were given the nod from within Majestic, causing a rift behind the scenes that exists even today. Now, Burrish was raised within Majestic on the NSA side of the equation under the wing of former leader of Majestic 12. Marsha was raised by her father, a highly placed courier for Majestic, also on the NSA side of the equation. The difference between them and the certain CIA whistleblowers is easily observed. To them, it's just a matter of right upbringing and the underlying knowledge of social graces. The NSA side of the equation remains in control of majestic operation as it concerns the extraterrestrial question. There is no sign that this balance will ever change. So now you know who to go talk to if you want a a question answered about extraterrestrials. The NSA is clearly in control of that and has been since the 50s. Well, sure. I mean, I can see how both sides are involved, and, and I can see how more more so the NSA today, because uh, Bush Sr., I mean, he was head of the CIA at one point, and uh, he's got tons of information on extraterrestrials. I mean, he was up on stage when his son was running for president, and someone asked about it, and he blatantly kind of just yelled out, you the infamous, you can't handle the truth kind of thing, which, you know, leads more credibility to the conspiracy theorists than, than not when you do that. This is uh, this just the way that Burrish explains everything. Yeah. It doesn't seem, this document is fantastic. I love reading about this and his, the, the explanations, the, the descriptions of each one of the bays is fascinating. Yeah, I mean when you when you do your research into this to this topic or or just Dan Burrish in general or Bob Lazar or Phil Schneider for that matter. I mean, I highly recommend looking into all of them. We'll, we're definitely going to cover them all at some point on this podcast, but it there's just there's just too much. There's just too much information here that just links. I mean, somebody I mean to be that detailed 
And they even said that the two guys, the uh, what was it, Burrish and Uphouse, they were questioned separately by two different agencies, and they both had the same story. So, and both of their descriptions of S four were like right on the money. So, I mean, two people aren't making up the same story, especially because the, I mean, until they had met, they were compartmentalized. I mean, they didn't know each other, right? And these S four schematics that they were able to pro- to provide, showing each floor down into five separate subterranean levels they're impeccable they they really are and i mean and this goes into so much depth that we've we've gotten to describing what's been going on 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 level one and we need to get down through levels two three four and five um unfortunately we're not going to be able to get to that tonight it's a two-parter it's a two-parter it's going to be because we don't want to we want this podcast to carry on through his excitement. We don't want anybody to be like, "Oh my gosh, this podcast is still going on. They're still talking about this." No. We want to give you just this little tip of the iceberg. We've covered level 1 with inside S4, but we still got levels 2 to 5 to go. Come on. We're going to be building some some excitement. I, I know I want to tune back in to find out what else is going on. I in can't S4. wait. I can't wait for the ending. And our listeners are way too important to give them a shortcoming and just try and run through this real quick. So this is going to be Subtle Beast's first two-parter. And uh, you know what? I'm excited to carry it out. I'm excited to get this episode out and uh, you know wet everybody's beak a little bit on the uh, Project Aquarius and S4 podcast. Dan Burrish. Dan Burrish, yeah. And we'll be back for another one. We certainly will. So we hope that you've liked what you've heard so far. Stay tuned because part two is going to be even better. So until next time, I'm Foltz. And I'm Steve. And we'll see you next time. Take care of one another. Bye-bye.